1987, the band manager for InXS, Chris Murphy, made an appointment with the head of Atlantic Records. He had with him a copy of InXS's eagerly awaited sixth studio album, and he just needed someone to release it. He nervously sat in the plush New York offices as the record label boss put his feet up on the desk and closed his eyes from the minute it went on to the minute it finished. Once it was over, he said to Chris Murphy, I'll give you a million dollars to go and record another album. This is not happening. This is shit. Feedback from other record labels was not much better, with one label head even calling Murphy up to ask what the hell he and the band thought they were doing. This new album didn't sound nearly rock and roll enough for anyone to release. They said the funk and dance elements were suited for black radio, but no one would promote it. But in excess band member Andrew Farris would later say, we weren't so much interested in what everyone else was doing as what we wanted to do. So Chris Murphy hatched a plan. He arranged a secret meeting with the staff of Atlantic's radio promotion division to play them their lead single. And they agreed to play in excess on college campus radio. And without telling the band, Murphy also withdrew and spent all their money promoting one make-or-break tour. As it turned out, what in excess wanted to do was exactly what the world was dying to hear. Kick, released on the 12th of October 1987, has sold over 20 million copies worldwide. It's been hailed as one of the best Australian albums of all time, and a landmark in genre-bending rhythm-rock perfection. And as it turns out, Kick wasn't the only Critical Smash released that week. Bruce Springsteen released Tunnel of Love, which sold 6 million copies around the world and also garnered wide critical acclaim. What happens when Judd and Pedro have to review two albums that are actually good? We're going to find out. Welcome to When Albums Collide. You're listening to the When Albums Collide podcast. Judd Boaz with you, as ever, joined by Pedro Duran. Pedro, what's happening? Not much, bud. Just hanging out. What is up with you? Not a lot. This is our sweet number 16, this episode, and uh, we couldn't have chosen a better duo of albums. We have, For the first time in what it seems like, I don't know, forever, we have two actual successful albums that were well-received. We have Bruce Springsteen's Tunnel of Love, which came out the 9th of October, 1987, and In Excess's Kick which came out three days later, 12th of October, 1987. Pedro, you know what I'm going to ask. What is your relationship with In Excess, and what's your relationship with The Boss? Well, with, with In Excess, it's, it's funny. I never knew I really knew their music until this week. So fans of the show would know that I'm originally from Florida, and in Central Florida, like theme parks are... Um, you know, a mainstay and they're massive in the area and the culture. And uh, that song, New Sensation, was used for a TV commercial for uh, SeaWorld that would run from like 1997 to 1998. So I used to hear that song a bunch growing up. Do it all in a day? No way! This is SeaWorld? It wasn't until this week that I realized that that song was actually uh, a part of this album. And then with Bruce, I mean, Bruce Springsteen is such a massive artist, um, particularly in the United States, especially with like Born in the USA and stuff. Um, that was like released in 1984. I, I mean, I, you, you kind of hear his music through os- osmosis, right? I used to watch a lot of Late Night with Conan O'Brien and the drummer, Max Weinberg, who was the lead of the, uh, he was the leader of the show's band. Um, he would mention a lot that he was in the the E Street band with with Bruce. So um, that's my uh, 
that's how I w- was familiar with Bruce. Two massive artists, especially in the 80s. These two bands were really big. Right. Artists were, were super, super big. In one corner, you have In Excess, which is three brothers and their three best mates trying to break into the U.S., putting all their effort into this one album. And I mentioned at the top of the show, it was hated by every record label they went to. They could not get anyone to take this album and release it. They thought it was all trash, and it went on to sell 20 million copies, so it shows how much they know. Yeah, crazy. And contrast this with Bruce Springsteen, and this is quite a step down. His This album, Tunnel of Love, only sold like 6 million copies, which would have been disappointing for him. Because he mm-hmm. isn't just popular with like American fans, he is like worshipped by American fans. He is America in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. And he he's writing a follow up here to, as you mentioned, Born in the USA, which is considered one of like the biggest rock albums of all time, which sold you know thirty million copies. So he only sold a paltry six million copies. And this album is very different to that album, and it's very different to um, Born to Run and Nebraska and all that. Oh, by the way, I'm a fucking Bruce Springsteen fan, just so, just so we can get that oh, out really? of the way. Okay, yeah. But I'll tell you what, listening to this album, I got to like the second track, and I thought, man, Pedro is going to hate this album. I can tell Pedro is not going to like it. Hmm. I didn't hate it. I'll, uh, you'll stand, I'll, you know, I'll correct you. I didn't, I didn't hate it. It wasn't great. I would tune out a couple of times here and there. I mean, we'll get into it. But like I, like I was saying at the top of the show, the most of Bruce Springsteen's songs that I know of are from um, Born in the USA, and they're a, mo- a lot more like rock and anthemy. I mean, like yeah, you you, you list them like Born in the USA, uh, Dancing in the Dark, um, yeah, Glory Days, and even before that, like Born to Run, um, Hungry Heart. These are all like up tempo, like up swingy songs, and then you get to this, and it is not this at all. No, it sounds a lot more. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more personal. But I would even say with like teetering and folk or even country. In uh, a lot of ways. I did have that um, in my notes too, <laughs> which I didn't find too bad. I mean, I I I did country, but the the fact that it's so personal and and it and you know it's about his relationship that fell apart. I just um, I, I I start kind of tuning out because it's like for me, how much do I want to listen to about this guy's problems? The best way I can really <laughs> really vocalize it. Ruthless as always, Pedro. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it would be a lot more interesting if there was a little more variety to the album. Let's get into it. Let's do it track by track. Opening up the uh, album for Tunnel of Love, Bruce Springsteen, Ain't Got You. And yeah, I heard this and I was like, what is this? This sounds nothing like what I was expecting of Bruce Springsteen of this era to sound like. It's like Mm. an old soul, almost bluegrassy number. Bro, I said it was was Elvis Presley. Oh, (laughs) that's what I had. That's what I had to. Damn it. It sounds like Elvis Presley with with the acoustic intro and then it turns into like a rockabilly song. It was like a throw. It was a total throwback to me. So that's why I was first listening. I was like, okay, maybe this is just something he's opening it up with. But then as the album goes on um it becomes very apparent i'm like oh okay this is the sound of the album okay so it's funny that we mentioned elvis because bruce springsteen loves elvis presley absolutely obsessed with him since he saw him on tv when he was a little kid he actually tells this really great story uh, at his gigs about how much of a fan he was of elvis in the middle of their like rise to success in their early albums they have this gig in memphis so he's like you know what i'm gonna go i'm gonna go to graceland i'm gonna meet elvis so he gets a cab after a gig over there at like midnight and he jumps the fence of Elvis's house and he runs up to the house 
And of course, he gets stopped by a security guard. And he asks, you know, um, is, is, is Mr. Presley here? Is Elvis here? And he gets told, no, Elvis is on holidays somewhere. And he's like, could, could, you, could you tell him I was here? My name's Bruce Springsteen. I'm on the cover of Newsweek this week. I'm, I'm kind, of a, kind of a big deal. And the security guard was like, yeah, sure, whatever, kid, get out of here. Yeah, beat it. And Bruce says he regrets it now because people are always jumping the fence at his house, so he knows how annoying it could be. But <laughs> huge Elvis fan, and you can hear it on this first track because he is doing his best Elvis impression. Uh, it's coming over big time. But this song, in particular, really sets off the tone for the entire album, which is a theme about a man who is, in his real life, is married and is in a failing marriage and is about to get divorced. Like, all these songs Mm -hmm. heavily centred around divorce, and surprise, surprise, art imitates life. He was actually going to get divorced um, after this album was made. In particular, this, like, this song, you just get it. I listen to the lyrics and I'm like, this is not chest-pumping anthem. This is... You are putting all of your belongings in the back of your hatchback Hyundai because your wife got the house and the divorce. This is what this uh-huh. music is about. I just took it as, okay, so this is Bruce talking about himself because he's one of the most successful artists at this point, you know? And then contrasted opening track of In Excess's Kick, Guns in the Sky. Way different, man. It isn't bluegrass, that's for sure. They're doing hip-hop. They're doing a hip-hop beat. I was waiting for Michael Hutchins to to spit a verse. Oh, he does. He might. He, he gets a little rappy. He gets a little bit rappy, yeah. But this this song is a apparent criticism to the strategic defense initiative uh, that Ronald Reagan suggested, uh, and he gets they get quite intense with this. Like there's lyrics where they sing like "It's a load of shit, I'm sick of it," and I'm like, oh, that's quite intense for 1987. Yeah, I found that super interesting, especially from an Aussie band because go on and uh, criticize, um, you know, Ronald Reagan, the U.S. president at the time, and I think. Some a bit indicative of the uh, of the decade. I mean, we'll go into it a little bit later, but I think it's a, a reason as to why "Born in the USA" that the album Bruce previously put out was so massive. Like you said, he he puts out really cynical music. I think those the lyrics in that album was a was a massive reason as to why that was so successful. It's just the mood in in the world right now was kind of this anti Ronald Reagan, anti conservative, anti. I, want to, I guess, capitalistic commercialism that was um, happening in the world. So that kicks off, and I'm, like, both of these opening tracks, pretty weak. <laughs> I'm going to say just straight like, I didn't like either of these tracks. In fact, I would say, because, you know, Bruce Springsteen, it's like a vinyl record. Side A, the first entire half of Tunnel of Love, I wasn't that crazy about, I'm going to be honest. Mm. Like, okay, I'm going to come off like a total pleb here. Okay. I just like the, I like the popular songs, man. I like Born in the USA. Is that so wrong? No, no. So what's going on, man? The next song, Tougher Than the Rest, we are dangerously close to country music here. Dangerously yeah. flirting with Heartland Rock country music. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, well, This is uh, the second track when I list, started listening to this. I was like, oh, okay, I guess this album, the whole album is going to be, you know, this country western kind of theme and i was at the point i was like all right cool i'm i'm, I'm down with it let's see how it goes i don't know i just I, I also wasn't too ecstatic about it but i say i would say it was a decent tune we haven't done this in a while deep dive into the youtube comments this one comes from an account called chrissy green i miss brandon okay mm-hmm. it reads quote I'm a 45-year-old woman who has been divorced two times. I have tons of baggage. Within four years, I lost my sister, my father, my mother, and my 16-year-old son. I've been beaten in every conceivable way by men. Just as I was ready to give up on life, I met my soulmate. 
he is a blessing, and he isn't afraid of all that I am. This is my song to him. So I was thinking, this album is very clearly um, how tough is marriage, and marriage is a struggle, and it's just the two of us against the world, but also, I don't want to be with you anymore. Is this an album that, like, when you and I are still doing this fucking podcast in 30 years' time, we're both married or divorced, <laughs> we're going to come back to this album and be like, Bruce, I, I know what you're saying now. Like, now I get you now, Bruce. Yeah. Is that, we're just, like, not quite there yet? I, I think so, maybe. Uh, I, I guess I've never been married or divorced, and I'm, I'm pretty sure you've never been married or divorced. Not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, maybe it's just a thing that we haven't um, been through the tunnel of love as Bruce has had, has been. <laughs> so therefore, we aren't able to uh, relate to the album as much as um, that YouTube commenter uh, was able to. Next track on NXS's kick, New Sensation, SeaWorld Beckons, my man. Mm, the yes. drum on this is so fucking punchy. Like, it just reverberates all through the thing. And I thought definitely, and I, I guess I haven't listened to it that closely before, but when the chorus comes in, you got the backing vocals, I'm like, there is such a gospel element to this, like a real yeah. chorusy black element to it. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, like, they wouldn't promote this album because, like, oh, that's for black radio. Like, mainstream rock radio won't play something this black sounding. I don't know what 1987 rock radio sounds like. Well, actually, I do because the number one hit in 1987 was Tunnel of Love by Bruce Springsteen, which is pretty, yeah. white, pretty white sounding. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Some of my earliest memories of In Excess uh, and probably some of my earliest memories, period, were just, like, being in the car with my dad and he was playing in excess, and he had that song Original Sin on, which I don't know if you've heard. No. Um, but the chorus goes like... It's like about an interracial relationship or whatever. This has always been a thing in their music, where they're incorporating African-American styles and like with, with white Caucasian rock and stuff. Very interesting, especially interesting considering that they're Australian and they're not even yeah. American. And they have yeah, yeah. very little, you know, African-American heritage. It was super interesting. And then after NXS, like after Kick gets big, then you have all these bands getting signed. that are trying to do that like funk, black sounding music, like Red Hot Chili Peppers and mm. Faith No More and, and bands like this. They all get signed because of NXS. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, um, that, that you would mention that they have this kind of, lack of a better word, urban sensibility to their music and they grew up in... In Sydney, I believe, right in New South yeah, Wales, yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, it's not that much of a of a African community there, or enough to be that we wouldn't be surprised that they would be influenced by this music. So I wonder where their influences coming from but um i really did enjoy this song especially like in 2020 it's still fun you know it's still like upbeat and and just fun and just like it's a radio ready rock song just it, it just especially coming from that political song right before this it just the shift of the album just turns um to a more up tempo uh feel and i can understand why you know, ad agencies were ready to take the song and put it on a bunch of commercials because it's just um, a great pop song. They always say, did you notice, because you probably listened to this a, lot, a bunch of times, but when the saxophone part, what right before Kirk's about to play, uh, Michael goes like, trumpet, and then the saxophone comes on. <laughs> I didn't know. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, check that out. I thought it was just so funny because it's just like... I 
know. I just thought it was a funny thing. It reminded me of the darkness in that song. I bring up the darkness all the time yeah, on this like a ten, podcast. Ten times an episode. <laughs> yeah, but it reminds me of the darkness in um, their their main song. Now it's escaping me. Fuck. But he goes, uh, guitar. And then the solo guitar comes on. So I thought it was funny that he just said, trumpet. And then the sax comes <laughs> on. What did you think of the next song, too? You're talking about, like, where they're getting the influences. I think Michael Jackson might have had something to do with the next song a little bit. Because mm. I got a real, like, Michael Jackson in Bad or or Michael Jackson in Beat It in the next song, Devil mm. Inside. I was like, mm, mm-hmm. big smack of MJ here, Michael Hutchinson's vocals. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. Out of all the songs on the album, for me, this is where I was kind of like, okay, where is this going? Because I thought this was... Just me personally, it was the one of the weaker songs on the album. Really? Know, you didn't like Devil yeah, Inside? Not really. Compared to everything else on the album, I I, I, I kind of forgot about this. Um, and I know that this song was super successful because it was like number two on the Billboard charts when it was when it came out. But I don't know. And even the theme about there's some kind of wickedness in all of us, whether it be male or female, you know, um, I just was kind of like, all right, whatever. I just... Uh, it was. It didn't win me over at all. Yeah, I didn't mind it. I thought it was pretty good. All right, here we go. Here we, we got a we got a big chunk of info coming up. The next song on Tunnel of Love, "All That Heaven Will Allow." Now it, it's a fine song, but it was this around this period. I was like, yeah, Pedro's gonna hate this album. Pedro ain't gonna like this album. <laughs> but I thought what was more interesting than this album was the tour that came afterwards. Okay. They went on a huge, you know, year-long tour in 1988 after this came out, and it was full of drama, mainly because it was nothing like any of his other tours. I think because Bruce was a little bit uncomfortable with how famous he had become, and he's doing mm. all these, like, huge stadiums and stuff. So this is completely subverting audiences' expectations. It's a really weird stage show and very different from everything else that they've done. In particular, what was strange is that because most of these songs were about marriages or relationships in trouble, people started to think, like, Springsteen, what's what's going on, man? Didn't you recently get married to an actress in 1985? I thought you were, you were happily married. And by the time we hit the tour of this album, February 1988, things are not going well. Mm. What's even weirder is this Tunnel of Love Express tour, the shows are way hornier and more sexual than Bruce has ever been on his shows or whatever. Usually he's just, like, a, okay. a fun-loving guy that likes to dance. And in particular, he's getting very close with one backup dancer called Patty Ski Alpha. In fact, like, you know, Tunnel of Love comes on the opener, and they're pretty much face-to-face. They're almost making out as they sing a duet on, on stage. Yeah. It's weird. Oh, also, he doesn't seem to be wearing his wedding ring anymore. Isn't that weird that he's on stage mm. not wearing his wedding ring? So people started to put two and two together, and by the time the tour hits Europe in June... The paparazzi have photos of Springsteen and the backup dancer, Ski Alpha, and they're, like, snuggling in their underwear and they're on a balcony and stuff. So it's pretty pretty obvious that the divorce has happened or that they're separated and he's moved on with this new backup dancer. Now, in, in fairness, Springsteen did meet Ski Alpha, the backup dancer, first, and they'd been close friends and were even going to become a couple right around the Born in the USA tour, and then he met Julianne Phillips, his actress wife, and then they got married all of a sudden and sort of left Ski Alpha out in the cold. So maybe this was going back to her, I don't know, but definitely this whole album, every song is tinged with, oh, this is a man that's about to get divorced from his wife, and he doesn't know how to be married. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, he made, a, I guess, the the classic mistake of, of a celebrity where you get a, this 
breakout success, like worldwide famous, and then you get married shortly after that because I imagine the, I mean, the the pressures of fame and and money, and now now you're a superstar. You know, people are throwing themselves at you, so that probably was all really just like fucking with him, and and then he, you know, he's thinking about that. But yeah, if you listen to this album, he there's some problems in his relationship because that's the 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 thrust of the of the album topic is just all this stuff about like he's not sure and even one song he's talking about like possibly cheating and um he says one he says about a girl that isn't married and he's not pretending to be married either super reflective of his mind state at the time it's funny because like a lot of his famous songs too have to do with marriage not working out like the opening lines of hungry heart from the river are Got a wife and kids in Baltimore, Jack. Went out for a ride and I never came back. And it's mm. like, you know, quite clearly, like, it influences a lot of his music. And also, because he's tied up in that whole, like, sort of Catholic upbringing, which I know, like, mm. a lot of Americans, like, you guys are real strict about marriage, huh? Like, you guys really take it seriously. And he right. has stated about his, like, Catholicism. He came to understand that once you're a Catholic, you're always a Catholic. And I don't participate in the religion, but I know that somewhere deep inside, I'm still on the team, so to speak. <laughs> um, so, it, like, that's got to be going through his head as well. Like, oh, divorce is like a sin and it's frowned upon and it's like a failure. So, mm. yeah, there's a lot going on here. Yeah, yeah. The next song, Spare Parts. This is a song I can sink my teeth into. Opening lines, Bobby said he'd pull out, Bobby stayed in, Janie had a baby, it wasn't any sin. I'm like, oh, here we go. Now, we, now we're doing some Springsteen. Yeah, yeah, it was funny. Yeah, it's, um, I love this, the, the story aspect of it. It um, actually reminds me of um, Bon Jovi's, like, Living on a Prayer. Like, they had, like, the two, they stick together and, like, we got to hold on because we've all we've got or whatever. This is, like, in this, in this song, g- guy doesn't pull out. Girl, woman has a baby he just fucking books he gets out of there and she's a single mother and that's what she does yeah it's super interesting i wonder if that was uh just a trend that there was that was carrying on in in the 80s or uh, something i but... think it still continues to this day pedro <laughs> oh yeah but you know can you think of a song that came out recently where it's just like you know johnny did that and john and then janey is the girl or something oh, like that. right yeah 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 um no i was just talking about dudes just pulling out yeah i was talking about pulling out yeah, yeah. oh okay yeah 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 guys are still uh, oh you're talking uh, about the music yeah yeah, yeah. guys yeah, still doing the, that, yeah. yeah and and yeah like right this song gets quite intense because the guy goes to work on an oil rig leaves her behind and then she thinks about killing her baby in the river and i'm like holy mm. shit yeah yeah it's crazy this is like that real springsteen kind of working class i was gonna say almost like white trash kind of theme but i don't want to it's not. It's not that. That is that. Yeah, yeah. It's like working class for sure. Yeah, yeah. The working class problems, which I think he's really synonymous with, and and uh, feeds it into his popularity. But um, yeah, I was I was really digging this song, and I thought it was one of the the stands out of the of the album. We'll just wrap up. This is the the side A, the finale to side A on Tunnel of Love, Walk Like a Man, where he's talking about being there on his wedding day, and he's it's like he's having a conversation with his dad, and Springsteen mm-hmm. famously has quite a rocky relationship relationship with his father um and so that that came up to it as well but i just kept going back to these I, like i kept watching live videos of this tunnel of love concert after this springsteen kind of has a decline like he's never as good again after tunnel of love people have generally mm. said born in the usa he sells out mainstream appeal and then he has tunnel of love which is his underrated classic and then he falls off 
interestingly, he did a show in East Berlin, which is, it's July 19, 1988, which means the Berlin Wall doesn't fall for another 16 months. Like, communism mm-hmm. is still a thing in, in Berlin. So it was organized by the socialist youth movement Free German Youth, and it was mm-hmm. to, quote, relieve some tension among the younger populations of East Germany. A.K.A. they hated living in a commie shithole and they wanted to bring in one of the popular Western musicians. Yeah. The state newspaper, like, oh, here's this, like, working-class American who attacks all the social wrongs in America and he's really hypercritical of Reagan and this is going to be really great. This is going to convince people that America's bad. And guess what? It had the exact opposite effect. Yeah. Like, 150,000 people show up. Estimates go up to there might have been half a million people there, which is, like... 1% of the entire German population was at this concert, and they're all singing Born in the USA, and they mean it. They're all thinking right now, like, man, I really wish I lived in America right now. Yeah, especially uh, uh, non-native English speakers. If you're hearing that song, you probably think it comes, uh, you know, it's a very patriotic song. And and you're singing the hook, like, Born in the US. You're just like, yeah. America number one. You know how like Germans are. And um alienating our German listenership. <laughs> yes, definitely. They're still behind the walls, so I don't know if there anyone's listening. Um, <laughs> I mean, you live in a communist regime and you get this awesome the biggest rock star on the planet comes and he has all these awesome songs. Like of course it's gonna make you want to live in America. Yeah, it's like they they might as well have gone there with uh, free McDonald's for everybody. You know, Dude, I mean? it's like, exactly like when when the USSR like you know opened up and I guess uh, yeah. Gorbachev like tore down this wall and they opened the first McDonald's in Moscow and just the line is three kilometers long because everyone wants yeah. McDonald's, everyone wants Bruce yeah. Springsteen. Final encore, his big song, Dancing in the Dark, one of my favorite songs. He brings this German East German girl up on stage. And I swear to God, the way this girl is looking at him, she would have let him put a baby on in her, like, on stage in front of half a million people. She's like, yeah, like, I have a husband down there, it's fine, just do whatever, Bruce, let's go, let's go back to America, I'm yours, like, fuck it, yeah, let's go. You can just, like, see, like, the way she's staring at him, she's like, this is, this is the best moment of my life. Yeah, and that German girl would go on to be Courtney Cox. <laughs> Angela Merkel. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so like he's like, oh, thanks so much for coming up, goes in for the hug, and she very clearly is leaning in for a kiss. She's like, I'm going to go for really? it. Fucking kiss yeah. Obviously, she doesn't know that one of the backup dancers on stage is staring daggers through her right now, and is, she's going to end her whole career if she kisses Bruce Springsteen. Uh, and apparently she's an event planner somewhere in Berlin right now and um, still has oh. the shirt unwashed from that concert. Oh, wow. All right. Dude, watch well. that. It's a great concert just because it's like the significance of it. People like historians have said like it was very significant in capturing the discontent of the German public at the time and like pushing for changes. Bruce really? Springsteen, who would have thought? Crystallizing their malcontent. Let's take a pause for the cause. We'll be back with more In Excess, more Bruce Springsteen after this. What's up, guys? It's Ruby here. You can check out my brand new single, Spell, along with all my other tracks right now on Spotify or wherever you get your music. Mwah. 
Welcome back to When Albums Collide. I cannot say Springsteen to save my life right now. On In Excess's Kick, we have a song that comes up. It's called Need You Tonight. Now, mm. I don't know about you, but this is an instant classic. You put this yeah. on, you know this is a classic. The story goes that Andrew Farris, they knew they needed one more song for the album. So they were going to go, they had an apartment in Hong Kong, shout out to Hong Kong. And he was going to fly with Michael. They're going to go to Hong Kong, do a bit of songwriting, do a bit of partying, come up with like a hit single. He's waiting in the cab to go to the airport. And he thought up this guitar riff. This like certain guitar riff sounded a bit like, you know, dang, dang, dang. So he told the cab mm-hmm. driver to wait a couple minutes. Like, I left something up in the room. Can you just, just wait here? I'll be right back. And what he actually did was he went back upstairs to record the riff onto a cassette tape. So he came back downstairs 45 minutes later and the cab driver was still there just fucking furious. But it all worked out because Hutchins heard it, started penning most of the lyrics, came out with it in 10 minutes and it was an instant classic. Imagine that guy just like waiting out there and just, but it's just crazy. Like, why did he keep waiting? Why didn't he just like go somewhere oh, else? He kept that so... meter running. You better believe he kept that meter running. I guess you're right. Yeah, you're it's right. before Uber, man. But, um... yeah. Yeah, this is a this is a, a great song. This is another song that I've heard a million times but never knew it was actually on this album. And um, it was interesting. I was going through some of the research. Um, I think one of the band members just mentioned that he he thought it was like just an ingenious variation of Queen's "Another One Bites the Dust," and you can kind of hear it a little bit if uh, if you compare the if you compare the riffs. But yeah, yeah, they're, they're, it's it's an it's an amazing song. And I don't know if you got a chance to. Um, watch the video of this because that video the music video was super popular it's also one of the most 80s videos of all time right bro it was so crazy yeah because i was like looking at all the articles and stuff so i said let me watch the video and i was like dude this is an 80s ass video it's almost like you were making a parody of an 80s video just look at that video because it's just it's just the most 80s of 80s of 80s of everything so i guess it's just a, it's a, it's a testament to how important it was because it went on to win like five music awards it was nominated for nine and then in 1988 uh vmas it won like um um it just swept the, it swept the award shows so um if anyone's listening, just def- definitely check it out. Sort of the coda to this song is Mediate. And they were often played back-to-back, and they have, like, two very disparate moods. But you play these songs back-to-back as it, like, combines two songs from the album. And, like, the music video has this. It has both of these songs in the one mm-hmm. music video. Mediate, it's like this... I don't know. I mean, is it rap? Would you say this This is a... Would you say this is close to a rap song? I mean, I... I... Ugh, I, it's it has a rap <laughs> rhyming scheme to it, but I wouldn't say. It was I didn't. Like I didn't ask thing. if it was good rap. I just asked if it was rap. Uh, I don't know. It's. I guess. I sure because he he it is. I guess the structure of it, but he does a little sing songy in it. In it now. I mean, we can we can talk a little bit of it where like you got kick drum snare, kick drum snare. Um, I, obviously it's not a patch on what other rap albums would have came out in 1987, like. Eric B and Rakim, Paid in Full, yeah. maybe Public Enemy, Rebel Without a Pause. NWA, you know? yeah. Um, so obviously, like, you know, rap has advanced past what this is thing. But it is, like, sort of stream of consciousness. And I think this just added to the the idea that this album was way too African-American sounding for mainstream mm. rock at the time. Like, I can understand, obviously, Atlantic Records were idiots and they were wrong and ignorant bigots. But 
I can see where they're coming from. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And now that you mention you mention it in in, uh, in in relation to this song, this is the year a couple of months earlier. Appetite for Destruction comes out. Oh yeah, yeah, because we, we we've been to 1987 before on the podcast. Right. So Appetite for Destruction is out. So that means also Twisted Sisters out. So and like Aerosmiths out. So I think and even that glam metal and that hair metal. When you put it like that, yeah, they like this sounds nothing like Appetite for Destruction or Twisted Sister. Like this is so way funkier than any of that yeah definitely and even with the song like you know like uh need you tonight just think about it like it's almost like it's almost like a prince vibe you know what i mean like so i can now that you you put it in 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 relation to that i can i can see where that studio exact is kind of like well this isn't the rock that's being played it's not headbanger rock so yeah definitely Another song that's very reminiscent of Mediate is very similar to Calling All Nations, which is also quite hip-hop a little bit later in the album. The opening verse of Calling All Nations and the drum machine, man, I'm like, this could, there could be a trap remix of this tonight. There could be a trap remix of this right now. <laughs> yeah, that'll be. Uh, it would be awesome if somebody were to uh, to uh, remix it. Because, I don't know, sometimes I go on these YouTube um, rabbit holes and I'll... When, when we're doing an album, I'll see like, you know, how like YouTubers would be like, I'm doing an acoustic version of this song or this song and stuff like that. But a lot of the covers of Kick were a reggae version. So I found like reggae versions of Mystify. I found reggae version of like Tiny Daggers and stuff like that. And I was just like, I wonder if there was something in the music, the original music that lends itself to uh, the reggae sound. It is also, it's funny you bring that up because I was just thinking and one of my, when I think of, need you tonight the riff is so characteristic and obviously i know the song but girl talk you know who girl talk is he does remixes of songs and he adds like rap lyrics over non-rap artists and he did a remix of this with you know fabulous's holler back youngin he puts that over need you tonight and it fits so incredibly well all right it's so like their music is so funky that it actually fits someone rapping over it which a lot of like you're not gonna rap over appetite for destruction or back in black so huh this is super interesting springsteen i was like i was pretty ambivalent actually for most of this that first half of the album like oh like i was expecting a bit of born to run or you know a darkness at the edge of town what what's going on and then we get to the second side, and I'm like, yes, right here. Mm-hmm. This is this is where I'm at. This next run of three songs, straight fire for me. Tunnel of Love, and then Two Faces, and then Brilliant Disguise. I'm like, now 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 we have some Springsteen. This is what I'm talking about. Tunnel of Love. This is like maybe the first song that sounds like you could maybe sneak it onto kick. It's way more electronic. It's got the synths. It's uplifting, um, and it's about. A man meeting a woman and going through the tunnel of love at an amusement park, and it has the amusement park sound effects, but it's actually about marriage or entering a relationship. Yeah. By the way, Pedro, have you ever been in a tunnel of love? Like an actual tunnel of love? No. Uh, No, I don't think so. I don't get the purpose of it, because it's not an exciting ride. Like, Space Mountain is the the thrill of the ride and the fact you might get decapitated. Um, Whereas Tunnel of Love, is is it actually just like a dark space where teenage couples can finger bash each other under the cover of night. That's from what I understood that it always was. I think it was like a thing in 
that was like super popular in the 50s or something. Yeah, yeah, it's like the agreed upon fingering ride. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you take your finest dame to the carnival, you uh, get her a soda pop and some cotton candy, you go on the Ferris wheel. <laughs> and then, you know, right before you call it a night, you uh, ask her if you want to do the the, the tunnel of love. And um, it's agreed upon kind of thing. It's like Tinder nowadays. You know what I mean? <laughs> Everyone's on there and they say, oh, I'm not here just to hook up. But come on. Yeah, I had a girlfriend whose fantasy it always was to on a, on a roller coaster to be like, you know, pleasured. And I was like, oh, we'll do that. We'll go to, we'll go to Disneyland. So we went to Disneyland. And there are no Jesus. tunnel of love. <laughs> there are no tunnel of love. And no. I couldn't do it on a roller coaster because I was terrified of dying. Okay. So yeah. we're like, oh, well, the only alternative is like, it's a small world. Dude, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> but they, it's like a, on the boat, there are like 10 other people. So you can't do it discreetly at all. And there's, yeah. you know, there's like kids. I didn't, it didn't feel appropriate. And also, it is one of the creepiest, like worst acid trip rides of all time. Like it's a small yeah. world is terrifying. I just, I couldn't, I had performance anxiety. Yeah, yeah, I, that's totally understandable. I would have been concerned if she, Sorry, babe, if, if you, you were went, <laughs> I would have been concerned if you went through with it and she got off and more <laughs> because of the singing of, uh, you know, children from around the world. Um, that would have been a lot more concerning, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy you didn't go through with it. Oh, by the way, we, um, we compare and contrast albums on this podcast. Hey, Pedro, what oh, did yeah. you think of the song? <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, Tunnel of Love, yes. <laughs> um, no, number, um, to number one. Yeah, well, this is where, um, for me, the album does pick up again. And it's interesting because it was on a vinyl, so it's a different side. So, yeah, I just I, I thought it was um, an interesting metaphor. Like, he uses that fun house motif to describe i guess this this marriage that they're that the man and the woman are going through or this couple is going through in, in the song some interesting lyrics um i thought it was like i can feel the soft silk of your blouse and them soft thrills in our little fun house then the lights go out and it's just the three of us you me and all the stuff we're so scared of and as you go into the album and even with another the next song two faces i got the sense that bruce was really excited for this marriage and it was something that he i mean he want he definitely wanted to pursue it cuz he he went with it but he had so much doubt in it while he was in a relationship and i don't know if it was insecurity I mean, he doesn't i don't know if he really talks about it in in that sense it's so strange right because if you watched him on stage at any point in his career he's like looks like the most confident dude he's a rock star he can do whatever but maybe it is insecurity once you get behind closed doors you're not on stage anymore yeah yeah because you know even with two faces the whole song is about dichotomy you know it says lyrics like one that laughs one that cries one says hello one says goodbye one does things i don't understand it makes me feel like half a man, like stuff like that. I'm just like, bro, you're 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 the boss. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I mean, this song, Two Faces, I love it. He's doing a real Johnny Cash here with the way he's singing and the way he's talking is a little bit bipolar. There's two sides to him, and towards the end, he's talking about oh, this other man. He sings about this other man. You know, this other man is gonna take you away from me. He's talking about himself. Like, he has these two sides to him. There's a side to me that loves you, and there's a side to me that, that doesn't love you anymore. So he's writing this song, and obviously it's hard not to think about his divorce with Julie Phillips. And he has come out and said himself 
My first wife's one of the best people I've ever met. She's lovely, intelligent, a great person. But we were pretty different, and I realized I didn't know how to be married. And so they split up, and he wrote about it saying, I dealt with Julie and my separation abysmally, insisting it had to remain a private affair, so we released no press statement, causing furor, pain, and scandal when the news leaked out. It made a tough thing more heartbreaking than necessary. I deeply cared for Julie and her family, and my poor handling of this is something I regret to this day. So he you know, carries it with him, and you're going to hear it in this album. Yeah, yeah, it was probably eating him up, up inside the whole the whole time, and he just needed to uh, just let it all out on the album. Probably a big reason why this whole album is dealing with um, dealing with that topic. We had two really great songs, and then Brilliant Disguise. It was another hit single. The video is really cool for it because it's all done in one take. It's just him singing the song one take, and it just zooms in mm-hmm. on him, sort of uncomfortably. And again, it's like you know, being in bed at night and not even knowing who your partner is. They're like, "Are are you my are you my spouse, or are yeah, you just yeah. wearing a disguise?" This is a song where, like, I've been in relationships that are a bit like that, but I feel like these songs, I come back to them in 30 years after my fourth failed marriage. This is going to hit like a fucking truck full of bricks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it, it's super nuts. Like, and, and it goes back into if he's really that inse- insecure about everything, because even further on in the song, he says, I hear somebody call your name from underneath our willow. I saw something tuck in shame underneath your pillow. Well, I've tried so hard, baby, but I just can't see what a woman like you is doing with me. And it's like, wow, man, it's it's very commendable that he's going to be so raw in the lyrics. You just wouldn't expect to hear that from a guy who just sold, what, 16 million albums? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. is kind of like this working class hero that everyone loves him and single handedly tore down the the Berlin Wall. But yeah, it was probably, I mean, he is an artist and he probably was eating up, eating him up inside so much that he just had to put it all on paper. Let's go back to the NXS album. The next two songs for me didn't do anything. One of them's a cover by The Loved Ones or of The Loved Ones called The Loved One. Mm-hmm. Extremely unnecessary. Didn't really fit with the rest of it because you've got this like sexy, funky, R&B almost rock album and then you just do a straight rock song. Yeah. It doesn't really fit. If you ask me. Yeah, yeah. And then the next song, Wildlife. I don't know if you had anything for it. Did nothing for me. I was like, okay, starting to peter out. Come on. Yeah, this is where I wrote in my notes. Yeah, it's just, it's funny that you said that because for Love One and Wildlife, I'm like, yeah, just typical rock songs. They're they're fine. They just didn't belong. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, we were just talking, like, Andrew Farris just wrote on a whim right before the album was released. Oh, well, let's just add, let's just add Need You Tonight. And I was like, well, without that, like, what is the album without the biggest single and your biggest song ever? You know, it's so yeah. interesting. The next song, Never Tear Us Apart. For me, now I don't know about you, Pedro. For me, this is one of the best songs Australia has ever produced. Like the, the, <laughs> really? first, the first cut, like there's a bit of silence. And then they, they come in with like the, all the band. Chills, brother. Chills. Yeah. In Australia, this is like a karaoke classic. And if you're not from Australia, I would recommend listen to this song. Because um, it's just a, it's just a, it's a really strong sort of ballady, waltzy song. Yeah, definitely. Big. You said this is the best song that Australia has ever produced. Yeah, one it, of one of the best songs Australia has ever produced. Even better than anything from the Wiggles or. Oh, uh, hot potato, hot potato is uh, is a banger. You know that. No, yeah. but I just there's for me like this is my favorite NXS song right here. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though it's not really as funky or as fun as any of their other songs. There's just something about it. 
it this song just sticks with you, man. Yeah, no, I'm um I really I, I like this one compared especially to the last two songs. It was a nice uh change of pace. Um um I'm really digging the opening synths on it, and I think it's a classic synth um opening even on on par with something like Eurythmic Sweet Dreams or Van Halen's Jump. Like you hear it and you just know um what you what you, what song it is. And it's interesting one song that really jumped out to me when I heard this was uh, Kanye West's uh, 2007 Flashing Lights. Because the opening of the track, is, I felt like it was almost identical with the, the Sims and then the gradual um, rising crescendo of the, the, the strings. And then before, it, you know, before that, uh, that beat kind of kicks in. Um, if you get a chance, listen to them like back to back. Cause I had to like go back and I was like, it reminds me of that song. And I was like, Oh, uh, I wonder if like Kanye was inspired by, by this song or anything like that. Um, Flashing lights also a great song. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I really, I really like, uh, really dug the song and I went back uh, you, what I've been doing too, when we're doing these album reviews is like watching the music videos as well, just to see, you know, you get a full uh, appreciation for uh, all of the art that came out with it. And, um, the music video was great too. But also I feel like this added like all of Bruce Springsteen's album is really sincere, right? And there's not a lot of fun on Tunnel of Love. Mm-hmm. Whereas all of NXS's album is all just sort of like, he's whispering, he's sexy, hey baby, come over here, ooh, ah. Mm-hmm. So I felt like it needed a song like this that just like, okay, you're being sincere and you're just singing and it's just a real song. It desperate, like this album desperately needed it, so it came right at the right time. And how do you feel about sax solos, my dude? Because there is a saxophone solo in this that will knock your socks off. Yeah, I am. Uh, I do like the the sax solo. Uh, when I was a youngster, uh, my mom used to play a lot of uh, Kenny G growing up, so um, I was in, indoctrinated into the to the saxophone sound. I think that's defined as an abusive childhood. Right? <laughs> I'll call uh, child services soon. The similar thing that happens at the start of this song where there's that first bit of silence, they love to do that because on the next song, Mystify, uh-huh. more good stuff, but it's the same thing. It's like the the arrangement is really sparse. Mm-hmm. You just have him like the vocals, piano line, Mystify me, and then like he's just snapping his fingers and then there's silence and then the whole band kicks in. Mm-hmm. They love doing that. So it's a real trademark of theirs. Yeah. And Mystify is another great song. Yeah, yeah. This was a it was a dope track and um and this was the one of the tracks that I was mentioning before that I was listening to on YouTube and then it recommended to me listen to the the reggae version. And I was like, "All right, cool. Let's let's see what's, what what's up with this." And it was actually pretty good you know so i thought it lends itself to that uh reggae sound pretty well so it's probably a testament to the composition of the original song that is just done so uh done very well this album isn't that long but it no. certainly felt kind of long to mm. me i think i think i think for some reason it is a lot very samey and so kick is a very fun song as well I love that both of these albums have title tracks. They say the name of the album in the album. Love that. And Kick is a pretty fun song. I like the horns on it a lot, yeah. but a little bit of a little bit drained towards the end. But yeah, Kick Kick also kicks ass. Yeah, yeah. I really like the horns when it when it um, uh, takes over in the in the chorus. I, I thought that was a really uh, 
a standout aspect of this track. I wanted to wanted to ask you one thing because going through all the research and stuff, I was I was looking at this and it was it, it um defined um this album as pub rock, and we were talking about ACDC um um a couple of episodes back, and you were talking about like that was you know that's that classic pub rock sound. Do you find this to be pub rock or do you like they, they're coming from Australia, Sydney, where do you see the venues that they will be playing? Their, yeah, their no, music? these, these guys, these guys are pub rock for sure. These guys are like legendary pub rock. Obviously their sound evolved and this is way funkier than their previous work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even, even like their later work is a little bit different, but these guys as live performers were really legendary around Sydney and all around Australia. Mm-hmm. I mentioned it uh, briefly at the start, but because no one wanted to take a chance on them, they had to, their manager, their band manager had to bet all their money on, okay, what are they really good at? They're really good at playing pubs and clubs. So what am I going to do? He books a college tour of the US and he just starts hitting all these college bars. And all these young people are really drunk and they're really liking it. And because Inaccessible played, you know, the past 15 years of their career just playing pubs and stuff, they know how to play a college bar. So they're just destroying at all these universities around America. That's how the album Kick becomes this massive success. Um, so, look, I know what you're saying because it's, it's way more slick, right? And way more electronic than ACDC or maybe Midnight Oil or something. Yeah. But these guys were, in terms of pub rock, these guys are up there as legendary status. You know, putting in the context of someone like next to ACDC and they're coming out around the same year thinking about, like I said, this article I read was like defining them as pub rock. And it's just like, well, I don't know. They do sound radio ready and they sound a little more funky. So I don't know if it was just as, you know, foot stomping, beer drinking as an, another band like um like acdc but um and then i was just curious like where were they be performing so no but yeah that's good yeah like absolutely same thing and i tell you what man you play never tear us apart in a pub today you play it in 1987 shit goes off man yeah (laughs) and also one thing that is sort of key to nxs's success is they are a like powerfully sexual heterosexual band Mm -hmm. michael hutchins was extremely favored by women folk yeah i will say that and they're like the stories of him are quite legendary of betting many 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 women in his career but i think that was a big appeal to them too like all of a sudden like girls wanted to go to these gigs as well because michael hutchins was going to be there and he was like a a rock god that was incredibly sexy yeah yeah definitely maybe the same for springsteen i don't know Uh, i don't know i don't know if springsteen gives that kind of sex sexual appeal do you think so i mean you're he's he's way more he's way more wholesome right like in excess are way more edgy than springsteen yeah yeah i just don't see springsteen just kind of I don't know, sit, taking off a shirt and like betting women in, in a very sexual way. I just feel like, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like he'll, he'll, he'll lay some bricks before he does that. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bruce Springsteen, this is on this Tunnel of Love tour. This is the first tabloid exposure he's ever had because he's right. like, he doesn't make any waves or anything. So him leaving his wife and falling in love with another woman and they're still happily married. So it isn't even that scandalous. Like this is the biggest 
um, scandal he's ever had. Right. Oh, interesting. For me, like, all the highlights of both albums are pretty much gone. Um, Tunnel of Love, it wraps up with some some alright songs. One Step Up is a very nice song as well. It's just about him as a man, and every time he feels like he takes one step up, it's two steps back. Mm. Uh, and also, when you're alone, something about when you're alone got me. Like I don't know, he's the the third verse. He's singing about someone leaving him, and he says, you know, one day you're gonna stop running around, you're gonna settle down, and you'll look back and think about all the good times we had, and like no hard feelings, but you'll realize that you want to come home. And I'm like, mm, damn, damn, that's gonna hit me one day. Yeah, give me another few marriages, Pedro. <laughs> that's gonna hit me one day. Yeah, this dude Bruce has been through a lot, man. It's just um... American, American troubadour. That's for sure. Did you have anything else for for either albums before we uh, take it to the breakdown? Yeah, I was just w- one step up. I like some of the song, uh, some of the metaphors that he's using in the song. You know, the song begins with like a house with a broken furnace and a car that doesn't start. You know, and this is just basically the metaphor for the couple's relationship, right? I I, I thought that was super interesting that he was able to that Bruce was able to uh, use those metaphors to convey himself. And then when you're alone in Valentine's Day, I mean, they continue on with the same theme. They're not bad songs, but um, at this point, I, I do kind of start tuning out just because I've heard the same thing again and again and again. Let's take it to the breakdown, man. Both of these albums were crazy successful by any metric, you know, we, we rarely do two successful albums. Mm. Um, so the question is, why were each successful in, in their own separate ways, Pedro? Mm. Interesting. I think with, with, with Bruce, uh, with Tunnel of Love, I mean, he's just coming off the success of Born in the USA, which is a phenomenon. He's, at this point, he's a megastar. So... He has that heat on him career-wise, and now he's coming out with an album that is a lot more personal and a lot more intimate. So I think the hardcore fans are definitely going to appreciate that. I mean, you consider yourself a pretty big fan of Bruce, right? And you enjoy this album a lot. Like myself, who is probably more a casual person, has never heard of this. I've heard more of the mainstream stuff. But I can appreciate this because, like I said in the show, I find it very admirable that he was able to put all this on record and in, in song about his uh, about his breakup. There's some things I can't relate to just because I haven't been married or and divorced and, you know, well, knock on wood, haven't hit that point in my life yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, I find it really commendable. That he's able to um, put all this stuff on on record and um, just be so raw and emotive with it. I feel like he was really uncomfortable with being that famous, like selling all that, like millions and millions of records. He just wanted to do like a hard left turn, throw everyone off the scent. Like he wanted to do his own album. And obviously he had his own issues that he wanted to write about. But he had done this before because The River came out and it was really successful, really like pop rock album lots of sing-alongs and then he came out with nebraska which is all about like serial killers being killed in electric chairs and stuff like that really dark uh folksy no anthems or whatever then he does born in the usa huge hits you know born in the usa big chest pumping thing singing on the fourth of july and then he comes out with this another hard left turn so i think he was just uncomfortable being famous and he wanted to do something different something to throw people off the scent and then after this album he pretty much disbands the e street band he's like you guys go do whatever you want to do yourself um i'm on my own from now on and Mm. they wouldn't play together until like 
1999 or something. Mm. Um, so this is like definitely the end of an era. Over time, critics have begun to see this as a sort of underrated classic because they understand what he was going through at that time. And I think as people get older, they'll revisit this album and be like, oh yeah, I can understand the difficulties of long-term relationships and stuff like that in excess though very much like another album that came out that year as we mentioned before appetite for destruction i think this album rode the wave of fun pop radio hits you know when you have four or five and this i'm talking about back in the day especially four or five singles that are super catchy on the radio they're being uh, they're being you're getting a lot of exposure you're gonna assume that the rest of the album is is um really good as well also the fact their video won best music video at the mtv awards that year they were it was nominated for nine they had two videos nominated for the same category that year, Best Editing. So they were nominated for nine music video awards. They won five, including Music Video of the Year. So, I mean, all that exposure is just they're like one of the biggest bands at, at that point. So I think um, all these things added to it. You can't can't uh, deny the power of MTV in the 80s, man. It was just um, how people got their music back in the day. You got a really good-looking frontman that all the girls want to be with and all the men want to be. You got all these hits, and they are hits still to this day. You yeah. can play a lot of their hits in the in, in any pub or any club, and they'll still go off, and people like them and, and like listening to them. It doesn't have a strong theme, I don't think, like Tunnel of Love or anything. No. There's yeah. no cohesive thing. But their guitarist and saxophonist, Kurt Pengilly, has come out and said, like, we wanted to write an album where every single song was a hit, was mm-hmm. a hit single. Like, that's what we were aiming for. And I don't think they pulled it off, but, like, a lot of the songs I, I can see could stand alone as another band single. And it was very inspiring to other bands. Like, even Bono of U2 came out and said, like, I was so jealous of the production on Kick because they, they got it to sound exactly how they wanted and it influenced us as well. So which two songs would you pick off each album to uh, show people what it's all about. I think Brilliant Disguise. As far as the song goes, I thought it was one of the better songs on the album. I thought the recording was done well, if that makes sense. Like the mixing was done well. It was, I thought it was radio friendly. I just thought it was just a just a good tune all around. It does touch on those themes that are prevalent throughout the whole album, man. I mean, about this relationship falling apart, his insecurities, his guilt that he's he's dealing with. So, uh, yeah, Brilliant Disguise will be the one for me off Tunnel of Love. And then off a of kick, huh, it's, it's going to be an obvious one, but... I'm going to harken back to my my SeaWorld days. I'm going to pick New Sensations. This is SeaWorld? Yeah, I'm going to pick that one just because I thought it was a, a super fun track and it brings me back to the old days of SeaWorld commercials. I know what you're saying usually where you want to pick a song that reflects. So if you like this album, you're going to like the rest of the album. So even though I think that Tunnel of Love, the title track, is the best song on Tunnel of Love, I'm going to go with Two Faces because it's mm. much more mellow. And it hits all the themes of falling out of love with your partner and not knowing what to do. And it's I'd really like his singing on that. Um, Two Two Faces is a great song. And then for In Excess, one of the best songs that Australia has ever produced, <laughs> Never Tear Us Apart. Yeah, I said it and I'll say it again. Yeah. That's a hell of a damn song, brother. Check it out. If you if maybe if you're not from Australia, you might not have heard it, because I don't know, why not? Um, that's a hell of a song. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's all for me. Uh, I guess we'll see you guys next week. We'll see ya. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>